Praise God. Hello, Grace Point family. It is good to be in the house of the Lord today. I want to encourage you right away to grab these note sheets out. Hopefully you got one as you came through the door. I want to encourage you to track along with us because, again, our community groups are meeting once again starting up this week. And so I hope you take some good notes. Again, if you don't have a pen, find the lady in the row with the biggest purse. She's got a couple of them, all right? Uh, but let's track together this morning. I, I believe God has a word for us today. And, you know, we were in a series, we've been in a series on grace called Amazing Grace. And we were supposed to move on this week, but I really felt like I can't move on. Okay, we're going to spend one more week talking about grace. Last week I shared about the story of David and David and Mephibosheth, right? Remember Mephibosheth, that great fun name to say. And one of the things that stood out to me uh, from that story was this reality that grace flows from the throne room of God. Amen. I think all of us this morning, if we've seen and we've received the grace of God, we know that it comes from his throne room into our lives, and we know this, right, that it can't stay here. It's got to flow out of our lives uh, to others. And so I want to share one more message today on a nourishing culture of grace. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, if you're looking for a book to read, this is a phenomenal book on grace. He writes these words. He says, grace comes free of charge to people who do not deserve it. And I am one of those. Anyone with me this morning? Right? I'm one of those people. I don't deserve it. And then he says, I think back to whom I was, resentful, a man wound tight with anger, which was just a single hardened link in a long chain of ungrace learned from family and school and church. Amazing. You can learn ungrace in church. And then he says this. But now I'm trying in my own small way to pipe the tune of grace. I do so because I know more surely than I know anything that any pang of healing or forgiveness or goodness I have ever felt comes solely from the grace of God. And he says this, I yearn for the church to become a nourishing culture of grace. read those words this week and they literally leapt off the page at me, right? A nourishing culture of that grace. I think one of the greatest tragedies of our time is that often people find more grace in the local bar than they do in the local church, right? And, and far too many people enter into churches in America and they leave never really understanding or experiencing the grace of God. The sad reality is churches and Christian groups are often known only for their rules and only for their religious pride and not for being authentic, grace-freed followers of Jesus Christ. It's far too common for Christians to believe in grace and yet be ungracious to others. In many churches you'll hear grace preached, but you won't see it extended. Show of hands today, how many of you have ever encountered an ungracious Christian? Not in this church, I'm talking about the church you went to before. How many have you ever encountered an ungracious Christian? Right? Hands around this room. Now, here's the tougher question, and, and let's be honest. Listen, if you can't be honest here in church, I don't know where you can be honest, but truthfully, how many of you have ever been the ungracious Christian? Right? Here, here's the reality. When we talk about grace, we love to lay hold of grace and forgiveness for ourselves, but we often demand perfection and performance from others. And so, church, I want to talk a little bit today about Christ's heart for his church, Christ's heart for, for this church. And 
if we can't lean, listen, if we can't lean into this culture of grace, we might as well change our name, right? Let's just be blunt, I don't know, right? This is Christ's heart for the church. And, and I, I think Yancey has it right when he says this, that, that the future of the church is that we would be a nourishing culture of the grace of God. So what does it take to develop that? But more importantly, what does it take to maintain that, right? One of our core values as a church is this, that we will fight for unity. We say this, we're always striving toward unity and commitment to one another. How many of you know unity is not a place where you arrive and that's it, right? you got to maintain the unity, amen? But in order to be committed to unity, I believe this, we first need to be committed to a grace gospel. We need to be committed to grace-oriented lifestyles and relationships. But understand this, when I talk about grace, this doesn't mean that we throw out truth, okay? Some churches are all grace and no truth, and that may sound nice, but it's not very loving. It's not very loving to withhold the truth of God's Word and His standards for living. Other churches are, are all truth and no grace, and so they just blast people with, with truth. And, and when people leave, they say, well, they just can't handle the truth. My guess is they probably could handle the truth if you weren't such a jerk in the way you communicated it, right? Let's be honest. Sometimes that's the truth. John 1.14, John tells us this about Jesus. It says, and the word, that's Jesus, right, became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Understand this today. Jesus embodies a fullness of truth and grace. Grace and truth, right? A fullness of grace and truth. He's the only person that has done it perfectly. He never compromised on one for the sake of the other. And in any interaction he had, he knew this delicate balance that each person needed, each situation needed. To the religious leaders of his time, he often gave a pretty strong dose of truth, right? He knew that they needed that truth. And yet he showered grace on those who were lost. Remember, he wept over the state of Jerusalem, right? For those that were, were caught in sin, he, he could compassionately see the person and he could see the potential in that person. I think of the woman that was caught in adultery, right? Even in her need, in that moment for grace, Jesus still extends truth and he tells her, repent, right? Turn away from this way of living. You see, grace and truth offered in the exact measure needed in Jesus Christ. But we, on the other hand, we don't always do it so well, do we? We often tend to approach life gravitating toward one or championing one over the other. I don't know if you've noticed, in our country there seems to be a civil war of sorts, right, to say the least. No matter what the issue is, there's this battle that's escalating daily, and it can get nasty, and we live in a culture that is constantly offended, right? But many times, for Christians, I see them going back and forth, and I can see sometimes that each is kind of safeguarding one of these attributes of God. And that's a good thing, right? One side protects this idea, well, we need standards, we need accountability, we need truth, and the other is saying, but we also need mercy, and we need compassion, and we need grace. And here's the reality. You can't have one exclusively without the other, otherwise there will be some harmful consequences. Understand this, if we have truth, 
without grace, right? Standards without compassion leads to legalism. Some of you come from that background, right? It's all, here's what you got to do. Here's the rules. You better fall in line, but there's no compassion when we stumble or when we fall. We, we can lay down the rules without regard to human pain and suffering. And sadly, at times, at, at the Bible itself, even the Word of God, can be a weapon, right? Used to condemn, used to control. But if, on the other side, we have grace without truth, understand this, compassion without standards leaves people stuck in sin. If it's all compassion without the truth of the Word of God, people remain stuck in their sin. And again, that's not a loving thing. The reason that the bar can seem like, like a more graceful place is the reality is they don't have to love you there and tell you the truth, right? You can just extend grace. But when we lack some structure for personal growth, all of a sudden this sense of entitlement can thrive in our lives and truth becomes subjective and truth becomes relative. And since everyone has their own truth, it's hard to actually pin things down and we begin to ignore reality, understand this unbounded sexuality in our culture. It will have consequences, okay, for individuals and families and communities. And so as you look at this war so often between truth and grace, understand Jesus calls us to, to carry both of those in our lives. A lot of times we're like, well, it's, it's my way or the highway, right? This is how, how I see it. But we need to listen. We need to emphasize. Empathize. We, we, we can't become so combative and intolerant and judgmental with other Christians. We, we need, again, to look at the life of Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. Can, can we strive to be like Jesus? Again, he's, he's our standard, right? And, and here's the thing about truth. Truth needs to be delivered with grace because truth stinks. Truth stinks, doesn't it? Truth needs to be delivered with grace because truth stinks. And so as we walk with people and we do life together in this place, as we disciple individuals, God brings our way. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives, not just give them a list of rules to follow. And so I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge you. Be as patient with others as God has been with you. Amen. Be as patient with others as God has been with you. We, we need to treat all people as God has treated us with love and with kindness and with forgiveness and with gentleness. The fact that we value unity as a church, listen to me, it doesn't mean that we've arrived. This is what we want God to work in us individually and as a body. Now, speaking on grace once in a while, I recognize this. It's not going to do it, right? we got to come back over and over again and we, until this becomes a part of our very nature. Because here's the problem. Tucked away inside our human character is an urge not only to earn God's favor, but also to compare ourselves with others so that we can outperform each other, right? C.S. Lewis said this, man is incurably religious. You see, pride actually makes us legalistic by nature. You say, why would anybody want to live that way? But pride makes us legalistic by nature. And so we all need regular doses of the truth of grace to flush out that garbage from our thinking. And, and we also, we love to give other people a good impression of ourselves, don't we, right? I, I want to make sure that, that they see me in a good way, right? And so we tend to wear a mask, and the result is kind of this Christian niceness, but it's not real righteousness sometimes. 
And one of the wonderful things about grace is that it reminds us, hey, it's okay to let others see how much God still needs to work in our lives. My wife and I have learned something as parents. We've learned a lot of things as parents right through the years. But one of the things we've learned is it's okay to apologize to your kids. You know that? It's okay for your kids to know, hey, we don't, we don't have it all together and, and we make mistakes. And so what does a Christian look like that pursues this amazing and, and yet real grace? A key passage I want to take you to today helps us discover how to put on this type of grace. Colossians chapter 3. I want you to turn there. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading there in verse 12. you this week, read through the book of Colossians. Okay, it's only four chapters, and you get through it in, in the city. Listen to this, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, listen to Paul's words here. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also, I encourage you to underline this word, what is it? Must forgive. In other words, it's not an option. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive each other. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God bless the reading of his word today. You see, Paul here helps us see something, and it's this. It's the relationship between God's grace to his children and our grace toward one another. And, and the first thing he says here, basically, is that grace-driven people remember. He'll let in. Grace-driven people remember where they came from. The pattern here is common in the New Testament letters, right? First comes the teaching of the truth of what God has done, and then comes the encouragement, okay, now live by that truth, Right? And verse 12, Paul describes the people he's writing to. If you're a Christian, you can take these words as true about you. Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Would you think it, it was odd if I came to you after service and I said, hey, holy one, you think that'd be kind of weird, right? But that's the language the New Testament uses of us, Right? Paul even uses those words about the carnal Corinthians, right? You see, before Paul calls us to be radically gracious to others, he reminds us of God's radical grace that has transformed our lives, that's changed our lives. If we are born again by God's Spirit, who are we? Well, first and foremost, we are God's chosen people. We, we did not choose God. God chose us. He chose you. The Bible tells us that God has set his love on us. He set his intentions on us as his very own. In the Old Testament, it was Israel, right? It was God's single chosen people. He established a covenant with them to be his. He 
made them a, a peculiar people. He made them a, a distinct people, unique from every other nation on the face of the earth. But when Jesus died and he, he rose again, he established a new covenant with a new body of people. It is his church. We are his body. Amen. And so the church today is composed of Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every ethnic group, every person brought into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ is now a member of Christ's body. We are God's chosen people. And Paul's saying, like the Jewish nation was to be different from all the others, holy, set apart for God's purposes. We are God's unique people today. We are holy. We are set apart for the purposes of God. You are God's chosen people, holy, right? Again, we don't earn the description of holy and acceptable if we are in Christ. God imparts the righteousness of Jesus to us. We are beloved. We are the dearly loved ones of God. Amen. And we don't earn and we don't keep God's love. You'll never discover a more powerful and motivating personal truth in life than this, that you are acceptable in Christ and you are God's beloved child. And here's the thing about his love, it's unconditional. You can't lose sight of that, church. It's so foundational. You need to know who you are because your identity in Christ will lay the foundation for how you function with other believers. Again, we are chosen, we are holy, and we are dearly loved. Amen? Come on, there's something I'm excited about this morning, right? We're chosen, we're holy, we're set apart, we are dearly loved by God. And, and here's the point. When you know how God's grace worked in you, you become free to express that grace to others. And if you don't know, or if you forget that God brought you to faith in his son by mercy and by grace, if you forget that he forgave your sins, you won't be forgiving and grace-filled with others. People who don't understand grace will never be free to share grace. And there are no religious traditions, there are no forms of legalism that will ever produce grace-filled relationships. See, legalistic people don't live in the grace world because they're always trying to earn God's favor, right? Or they're, they're trying to keep God's favor by just doing more. I've got to do more. I've got to do more for, so God will approve of me. But grace-driven people remember where they came from, and they celebrate God's grace by now sharing it with others. And, and so anytime you would look around this room and you'd start to think, well, he's not worthy to be here, or she's not worthy. Why do they dress like that or, or act like that or think like that? I encourage you, stop and remember where you were when God poured out his amazing grace on you. And hear me, I'm not saying hold back truth, but make sure when you speak the truth that it is spoken in love. Colossians 4, 6, he goes on to say, let your speech always be gracious. In other words, there is never a time when your speech should not come with grace. He says this, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, truth needs to be delivered with grace because truth stinks. Next, I would say this, grace-driven people reflect. Grace-driven people reflect grace. 
Paul says, again, because you're God's chosen, because you are, are God's beloved, and back in verse 12 again, put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved. He says, put on this compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So Paul reminds us of where we came from, but he also reminds us of our resources. And then Paul uses a, a favorite phrase. He says, put on, put on. Back in, in verse 10, Paul used the same language uh, to tell us this, that God's grace has given us a whole new self. Understand today, if, if you are a Christian, if God's grace has invaded your life, you are a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. Amen? The, the old is gone, the new has come, right? You're, you're a new person with a, a new character, and you have the power and the resources to live in that new identity. And he describes it like, like wearing a, a new wardrobe, right? He said in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 8, put off the old man. What does that mean? It means lay it aside. Just like you take off some grimy, old, worn-out clothing. Why? Because you're going to replace it with, with something nicer, right? It's, it's like getting up in the morning and heading to the closet. Are you with me, ladies? Heading to the closet. What am I going to wear today, right? And you're going to the closet, and, and you're going to make a choice. Now, you're free to make a choice of, of what to wear. We can either wear the old, nasty stuff that we had before we became to Christ, or we can wear the new glorious stuff that he has given to us. Amen? We have that choice. But how can this be? Well, God has chosen to be gracious and forgiven, and because God has touched our lives, we'll never be the same. We'll never be the same. And so these characteristics that he, he tells us to put on actually contrast with what used to be, right? The old ways were already mentioned. Chapter 3, Paul says, lay aside, take off, take off the anger and the rage and the slander and the filthy language, set that aside. He's told the believers, stop lying to each other already, right? We like to say this, that old habits die hard, right? But God says this, by the power and the truth of grace, you can put off these habits. They don't have power. Judgment Sarcasm. Let me pause there for a moment for our New Yorkers to take that in. Sarcasm. Okay? We're sarcastic people, but we don't realize sometimes in our sarcasm, our, our words cut. Right? Our words cut. Sometimes we don't mean it, sometimes we do. But all of these things, they don't match up with God's grace work in your life. And so put them off and instead put on new qualities. Let God's transforming power on the inside of you actually show up on the outside of you. What a novel idea, right? Beginning in verse 12, clothe yourself. Put on a, a compassionate heart. Put on compassion. The Greek term there is literally the bowels of sympathy. See, the Greeks thought that our emotions originate in our bowels. You ever heard that phrase, I've got gut feeling, right? That's, that's where it comes from, right? There is, listen to me, a heart of compassion that God wants to be visible in us, to feel for others and to feel with others. But we want to justify ourselves and tell others why they shouldn't feel that way. Whereas the compassion, right? Instead of assuming the worst and, and jumping to conclusions with your brothers and sisters in Christ in every situation, we need to put on compassion. We need to put on compassion. You see, I believe this grace believes the best in others, and gossip always speaks the worst, which you're going to choose, right? And 
and this applies to the home as well. When, when you deal with your spouse and you deal with your kids, approach all situations with compassion. It, it applies to the church when you come here on a Sunday morning ready to worship, come ready to show compassion. The Bible says this, God's compassion toward us is like a mother who cares tenderly for her children. And then we put on kindness. Kindness always grows out of compassion. Kindness grows out of compassion. Every once in a while I get these urges to demonstrate compassion to people, right? You get those sometimes, right? But those don't come from me. They come from the Holy Spirit. And the sad thing is sometimes I let those urges pass. But, but Paul says this, allow actions to flow from the Spirit's work inside of you out towards someone else who is in a place of need, in a place of hurt. The New Testament calls us to kindness, grace, if you will, with the identical term it uses to describe God's kindness. The Bible says God's kindness draws us, it leads us to repentance, right? Imagine how demonstrating that same kind of grace would encourage and motivate someone here. You see, you can be kind just by listening sometimes. You can be kind by, by sharing a truth from the Word of God. You can be kind by laying hands on someone and praying for them in their time of need. Maybe it's offering to help them with something you know they need to get done. Right? There's all these opportunities for us on a regular basis. And then he says this, put on humility. Humility actually flows out of remembering the grace of God to us. Romans 12, 3, Paul says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I want to encourage you, church, be very careful not to come at others in the body, especially new brothers and sisters with a holier-than-thou attitude. Instead, come ready to serve. When you point out a shortcoming in their life, say, I see this, but I want to help you through it. How can I encourage you? Can I pray for you right now? Or you're just going to leave that with them and just say, I saw this, so you got to deal with it, brother. We need to put on humility, and we need to wear meekness. Meekness. The, the word is, is the same word as gentleness, and so... It's the opposite of rudeness. It's the opposite of abrasiveness. And understand this today. Meekness is not weakness, okay? Meekness is not weakness. It's actually strength under control. Because you can't be meek if you're weak, only if you're strong. Because meekness is actually, I believe, real strength. It doesn't need to show off for others. Meekness is when you're willing to waive your rights and your preferences for the cause Christ for, for someone else, a brother and sister in Christ. And then he says this, put on patience. Literally, that means putting up with people's annoying conduct without responding the same way, right? That's a negative. Don't, don't, don't respond that way, right? It means holding back. It means restraining yourself from being upset or speaking harshly to people who, from a human point of view, maybe they actually deserve it, Right? And what does the world say? The world says, give them what they deserve. They, don't let them treat you like that. Give them what they deserve. But understand, grace says this, be patient with them. Hear me, there will always be Christians whose conduct you find difficult, okay? If you're looking for a church with no difficult Christians, I say, keep on moving. Keep on looking, right? I 
can tell you from experience, there are a few here, right? But every difficult interaction, I want you to understand this, is a chance to practice grace. Every difficult interaction that we have in the body of Christ is a chance to practice grace. Put on patience as you remember how patient God has been with you. This grace that we're to show to others, it leads to, I want to give you three concrete actions here in verse 13. Number one is this, forbear. Forbear. Forbear is an old word that we would translate put up with, right? Put up with. As we get to know other Christians, things are going to happen. We're going to rub each other the wrong way sometimes. That's just the way it is. Rough edges are going to show up. But what does the Bible say about this? We love to quote Proverbs 27, 17, right? Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, right? And so here's the reality. We can pull out our swords and, and we can fight or we can sharpen each other like iron sharpens iron. Yes, iron sharpens iron, but how many you know there's going to be some sparks when that happens, right? The, the sparks are, are going to fly. And God's word has, has a reality for this. He says, forbear or put up with one another. And then forgive whoever has a complaint against anyone. Someone offended you. Someone spoke out against you. Someone hurt you. Someone disappointed you. Forgive them. It's Christianity 101, right? Like, this is the basics. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. In other words, don't let your heart grow hard. Stay tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, who is this for? It's, is this for everyone? No. This is for those who have been forgiven by Christ. He's speaking to Christians here. Right? And he's saying, be in the way that Christ forgave you, that's how you forgive others. Confrontation may become necessary, but understand forgiveness is not a confrontation. And when it comes to confrontation, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. However, forgiveness is always fundamental. And forgiveness isn't the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation may or, or may not happen as you would like, but forgiveness demonstrates this, that your heart has been freed by the grace of God. It's the next reason that Paul gives us to, to forgive, right? Listen, if, if you've experienced God's forgiveness here this morning, you need to do the same. You need to fully forgive. You need to freely forgive. You need to graciously forgive others. And finally, he says, put on love. Colossians 3.14, again, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's believers who become perfectly bound together by love. And, and the commitment to love means this, that we're going to go the distance in relationships. We're not going to write people off or avoid them because they think differently than we do. This is where we have to, to get real and, and have to stop making excuses. This is where we determine man, the, the way that others react to me doesn't determine how I act and I relate to them. Amen? And, and, and don't think I'm suggesting here that grace should make us doormats or the recipients of, of abuse by other Christians. Of course, there is a time, again, to speak the truth, but speak it in love. There, there's a time to challenge other believers who are hurtful to also walk with God and also reflect His grace, to, to, to tell them to start letting Christ's grace and character show up in their lives time to teach them to become authentic, but I can guarantee this, that authentic, grace-driven people will mirror God's grace. Grace-driven people, I would say, finally, this, demonstrate.
demonstrate whose they are. They demonstrate who they actually belong to. There's a, a lot in verse 15 and 16, but, but the context is still relating to the body. And look at the heart of these things. Each one of these relates to who we are in Christ, who we belong to, right? First, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Paul talks about unity in the fellowship. In this case, to, to rule means to govern. Understand, peace is not just an individual experience here in the church, right? Peace is, is a corporate experience. And so everything that we do as a body must embrace Christ's peace. This describes how we approach one another, how we talk to one another, how we talk about one another, right? You see, grace-driven people choose to let Christ's peace rule them. And when Christ's peace is ruling your life, you will not be shaken by what other people do and by what other people say. Verse 16 tells us we need to allow Scripture to permeate our lives and permeate our, our church community. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We need to know God's Word well, and it needs to be our foundation. Amen? But understand, this is not just for ourselves. This is for the sake of the church that we would know the Word of God, that it would be the foundation for our lives. Listen, there's no substitute for the truth of Scripture, and the well-being of this church body depends on how well we all know it, right? Not just the pastor, but how well we all know it and how well we all live into it. And as we build upon that foundation, we need to remember to let Christ have lordship over our lives. If we allow Christ to have total lordship over our lives, then the way we treat each other will reflect this grace. It just will. But each of us need to take time to realize, maybe today re-realize God's unconditional love for us. If you're one to play the game of religion, if you're trying to do more, just do what I can earn my way, stop, you're headed towards a spiritual breakdown. Christ has an abundance of grace waiting for you. Scripture tells us this. He can set you free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. So don't let your freedom in Him be taken from you by someone who's wearing a mask of religion and just giving you a list of what you need to do to get to heaven. Would you stand with me today? As we move to close... I just have a few questions, and I want you to take some time to pray about the answers today. Heads bowed around this room. I want you to take some time to reflect on these. And the first one is this. In your walk with Christ, are you becoming a person of grace? Are you becoming a person of grace? Secondly, do you remember where you were when God found you? Finally, does His amazing grace draw you to Him again? that goes over all those. Would you mirror His grace with other believers? For some of you today, grace looks like forgiveness. Grace looks like forgiving a brother or sister who's wronged you. Not just saying they're forgiven, but actually letting them off the hook. Something was said. Something was, was done that cut you, but forgive them, let them off the hook. For some of you, grace looks like forbearance. Bearing with someone who can rub you the wrong way. 
apostle did when you're extending grace toward that individual. You're believing the best in someone, and, and, and you're realizing just like God's not done with you, he's not done with them either. But here's the truth, church. We need the Holy Spirit's power in order to live this way. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to live this way. To make sure that the culture of this church is a, a nourishing culture of grace, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not in us naturally to be that way. But today we can take off the way we used to live. We can take off those things that come naturally. We can put on that which comes supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. And so as we close today, these altars are going to be open. And I want us to pray that God would do a work in us as a church. So this isn't so much an individual altar call as a corporate altar call. That we would together say, God, would you work this grace in our lives and in our church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you make us a people of grace? That we would be those who have the grace to forgive and the grace to forbear, the grace that would allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. So as we close with a song, understand this. We are praying and we're believing for revival in our county. We're believing for revival in our nation. Amen. But it starts here, right? It starts with us being the people of grace that God's called us to be. And I believe this, that as grace flows from the throne of heaven, and it flows into our lives, that God desires for it to flow out of this place. And so as we close, would you just begin to move towards these altars tonight? Let's say, God, together, would you make us a people of grace? Would you make grace so tangible in this place that you'd use us to spur one another on? Help us to speak truth, but to speak it in love and with grace. So as we close with the song, just begin to move towards these altars today. Let's corporately say God.